Revival and the Desert. Come on. I'm going to weave those three verses together somehow. I know some of you are like, man, what did you just read up there? Just bear with me and we'll get there, all right? I was praying that bread of heaven prayer. I was thinking of, I don't know why, it's kind of my sick sense of humor, but as you know, Jim Gaffigan, that he's one time he was talking, he's like, you know, I, I know why Jesus had so many followers. When he was making bread, it was like focaccia. He's like, they've never tasted anything like that in their life. They're like, what is this guy doing? It's not just multiplying bread, it's focaccia bread, you know? It's like with cheese on it and stuff. So, a sixth sense of humor, I told you. Praying up here having a spiritual moment. Give us the bread of heaven, God. Give us some spiritual focaccia. All right, anyways, that's my joke for the night. Now we're going to get serious about God's word. Uh, all right, so revival in the desert, where am I going? Uh, the revival is a really popular term, I guess I would say. Most Christian circles would say we want revival. Uh, revival is something we talk about. And I just felt impressed by the, the Lord this week to talk about this because this is a word that we use and throw out in this context, I would say, a fair amount. And I think if we don't understand what we're talking about when we look at revival from a historical, biblical perspective, what happens is because we don't understand it, which I would say that the popular opinion of revival is probably not the true essence from a historical, biblical perspective of what revival is. And I think that there's a lot of misperceptions and then expectations around what revival is that are different from what the Lord's expectations of revival are. Okay? So what I'm going to say, let's, let's start with just what is revival. I want to kind of break it out of the popularity and get down to what is revival, right? And when I say the popular understanding, it would come down to like this. I think American Christianity would say something around revival is a bunch of people get saved, the churches grow and get bigger, there's an awakening, that's a popular word, people begin to hunger for God's presence, have experience with God's presence, in some circles of the church they even say there's supernatural expressions of God, miracles are taking place, and I guess the, it's kind of a ho-hum, super cheery, right? It's like, revival, we want revival, do you know what I'm talking about? You've, you've, we've all said this, right? We want this. We want all of those things, and all of those things are an aspect of revival. But what we fail to grasp when we throw this out casually, this word, is what revival has actually looked like throughout the history of the church, starting with Jesus. And the fact is, is that revival is much more messy than most people in the church like to recognize. And the church, and revival is also usually very persecuted. And this is the thing about revival, is it's usually persecuted from within the church itself. You can say, come on, that's right. But it's oftentimes the people that are praying for revival and they say, we want revival, that end up persecuting revival when it comes. This is the tricky part of revival. And I'm not saying this to scare anyone, but I'm sharing this to say is we have to understand and begin to posture ourselves for what it is that we're asking for when we say a word like revival. Uh, there was a revival uh, maybe 20, 30 years ago where the leaders said that they were praying. They were praying for the, the Lion of Judah to come and revival to come. And said they, they, they say, yeah, what we realize now is we were, we were equivalent of saying, here, kitty, kitty, here, kitty, kitty. And then the door swung open and it was the Lion of the tribe of Judah and it was terrifying. They had no idea what to do. You know, and that, that's kind of what we do when we throw the word revival out. Right? Revival is, if we were to break it down, a revival is essentially this. It is a heart cry that originates from God, but then he raises up communicators on earth to articulate, a community to articulate, that is exclaiming to the religious community of the day that there is something more than this. This is not the way it's supposed to be. There's more. That's a revival. Revival is actually an indictment against the sleeping church, right? You don't need to be awakened if you're already awake. And so revival is very uncomfortable. It's when God comes as the great stirrer-upper and begins to wake people up. And so we see throughout in Jesus' day and then all throughout the last 2,000 years of the church, awakening movements, revivalistic expressions that come from the heart of God, that originate from heaven and then are embodied by a community on earth, are, they're persecuted. And they're not persecuted by the world. They're persecuted by the church. And, it, and it's a rub. It's uncomfortable. 
And that's, do you see what I'm saying, how that's not usually woven into the popular sentiment of revival? You know the great awakenings that you've read about, and we, re, we learn about them, at least when I was in elementary school, we learned about them in this country. You know, Jonathan Edwards, the great, first great awakening, you know what I'm talking about? Like, what about the rest of you? They teach this in elementary school. I went to Andrus. I was there. Anybody? Okay, anyways, well, this is like American history. Jonathan Edwards, now he's in history books. Secular education was teaching about the Great Awakening, the early American revivals. Jonathan Edwards was basically hated in his day. There was all types of literature. You can look, there's published works that were saying he was a heretic and what he was doing was not of God by other Christian leaders. But we kind of forget about that in retrospect because hindsight's 2020, and we will validate historically what we're often uncomfortable with in the present day. This is what the Pharisees did with Jesus. They were like, we know the prophets were from God, but we don't know where you come from. And Jesus is saying, well, you would have persecuted them too. You honor them now, you would have persecuted them now because they're challenging you right now. So revival is quite challenging. Uh, You look all throughout like the Methodist revival, John Wesley, ever heard of him? Do you think England liked him? No, the word Methodist was slander. They were making fun of them because they had these uh, very rigorous disciplines that they embodied as a community. They got labeled for the outside. It was a slanderous word. You're the Methodist. Methodist. They didn't like that he was going to the prisons and visiting the poor and the ostracized. They thought what he was doing was wrong. They They condemned it because he was challenging the religious structure of the day. God was using John Wesley to stir up a nation. And he did, but it was not exactly liked. Right, so revival is an awakening. It is a powerful, amazing thing. But it is not necessarily that something that everybody likes. And it surprises us. It surprises me. No one really knows how we're going to respond when God comes as the great awakener, stir-upper, and he starts shaking things. Right? It's, it's only the, the poor and the, the humble in heart that will really respond well. That's my belief. Right, so, so revival, I, I, I want to have a sober, like a real understanding. What are we talking about when we say that God is initiating something here? He's, he's beginning something that's revivalistic. Right, we need to have right expectations around this thing if we're going to cultivate it as a community. Right, next question is, where does revival come from? The, the two, two-fold answer to this, both of them are mysterious. They're not going to fully satiate a desire to comprehend this entirely. But the first answer is they come from heaven. A revival is initiated in the heart of God. It's not initiated by man. Revival is God's heart for a pure bride expressed. And so God lavishes. And God does it when he wants to. He does it in ways that we don't expect. He uses people often that we don't expect. He works in ways that are uncomfortable. They challenge us. They turn things upside down. They, they often, always actually, they, they step on the toes of social norms. This is Jesus. We're going to look at Jesus a little bit here. So uh, we'll find this all in the life of Jesus. But revival comes from heaven. All right, but the second answer is this. And this is the answer that I, I really want us as a community to grasp tonight. Is that revival, from an earthly perspective, revival comes from the desert. Say desert. Revival comes from the desert. It doesn't come from the places of institutional power. The authority, revivalistic authority, actually emerges on human individuals that emerge from the desert, meaning that they've been face-to-face with God, and they come forth from that place, from that wilderness place, with an authority that begins to bring transformation, that begins to express itself in the earth. We read these verses about Jesus. We're going to look at this, but I just want to kind of begin that. And that's the the premise of really what I want to talk about tonight is that revival comes from the desert. What is the desert? We're going to look at the life of Jesus. This is how I define the desert. The desert consists of both Nazareth and the wilderness. And we're going to look at that in the life of Jesus, okay? Okay. For the four of you that are still awake. All right, so Jesus, our example here, Jesus, the great revivalist, he begins his life. He has a very uh, euphoric beginning, right, in the sense that there's epiphanies, there's revelations, there's prophetic dispensation from heaven. He is the Lord's anointed. They bring these gifts. They lavish him. They, you know, name him Jesus. Mary holds these things in her heart. You know what I'm talking about? Christmas, anybody? 
Yeah, okay, so amazing beginning, and then what? Crickets. Right? He, 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 goes to, he goes to Egypt for a bit. We don't know how long exactly, but then he spends most of his childhood, his life, his young adulthood, his, post, his early adulthood, his 20s up to 30, he spends 30 years in Nazareth. Say 30 years. 30 years Jesus spends in Nazareth. All right, what is Nazareth? It's the ordinary and it's the mundane. Right? Jesus has a call, this call by God. He was, he was, I mean, I'm sure he was anointed before he ever came. You know what I'm talking about? He's God. He comes as a baby, has this amazing experience. God and Mary knows all these things. He's going to save the world. She doesn't quite understand what that means, but the angel comes to her. She's an immaculate conception. She knows the whole time there's something different about this child, but there's nothing that we even hear written about him other than he spent a couple days extra playing hooky from the caravan in Jerusalem. That's the only thing we hear about him. We know he's a special child. He was growing in wisdom and favor, but he was not doing external things that would demonstrate him as God. In other words, in Nazareth, life is so ordinary that the only place you'll find your thirst is in the inner life. Satisfied. That's the only, it, it's designed. Nazareth is designed, it, it will not satisfy the thirst of what you're really longing for. The, ex the external circumstances, it won't, because Nazareth is God's design. He sticks Jesus there so that the kingdom of God will be interiorized in him. Because the only thing that will satisfy your thirst is the interior life. It's the inner life. It's not the outer life. The kingdom is inside, outside. Inside, outside. We say that all the time, but very few embody that. What does it mean to live inside, outside? You have to walk through Nazareth. Jesus is in Nazareth for 30 years. He's so ordinary that the Son of God is known as Mary and Joseph's boy. That the, that the star breather is known as a carpenter. That the Messiah, the one that all the hopes of Israel are resting upon, he was going to the Passover ceremonies and going to the temple and going to the festivals, the one that they were all about, and he was a participant with them. And he was just a boy. That's how ordinary Nazareth is. And Nazareth is designed to exemplify, to awaken thirst, to, to almost make it an excruciating thirst. Because on the outside, it's just not there. It's the inside that will satisfy the thirst. Right? And you, you look at Jesus, and you can see, right? Some, I think we have this mindset sometimes. It's like Jesus gets baptized in the Spirit, he goes to the wilderness, which we'll talk about in a minute. He emerges from the wilderness, and he has these incredible elaborate teachings about the kingdom of God. And it's like he just, he got those all in 40 days. I don't think so. Jesus was poor in spirit. Jesus was hungry and thirsty for righteousness. Jesus knew mourning. Joseph was no longer there. He had died. He was meek. He was pure in heart. He, you know, where did these, these parables come of the flower and the lilies? You can imagine Jesus probably walking on an ordinary day in Nazareth, communing with his father, the father speaking, hey, see the lily? Like, like we dehumanize Jesus often in the gospels. He lived for 30 years. How do you think Jesus had the words that could pierce through the conflict of the time? and bring the third way of the kingdom into all these situations because he'd lived there for 30 years as Mary and Joseph's boy. The ordinary, the mundane, but the kingdom of God had become interiorized in him. So everything, the essence of him was the kingdom. His words, his actions, his relationships, it was kingdom because Jesus had walked through Nazareth. Nazareth is the bulk of the desert. It's the exterior nothingness but the riches are just beneath the surface. They're always available. Nazareth, right? Not, not, not what you would think after Christmas. You would think amazing things. Are there any more gifts coming? Are there any more? No, it's just silence. I heard a phrase recently that, that Jesus was the stepson of silence because Joseph never says a word throughout the Gospels. 
And that Jesus had to sit silently in Nazareth, allowing the Father to prepare him for the work that he had called to do. So Nazareth, first part of the desert. And then he spends 40 days in the wilderness. All right, and this is a really big oversimplification. I could probably do three messages on the wilderness itself, but this is what I'm going to just boil it down to. Is the wilderness, it's a crisis experience that does one of two things. One is that it reveals the power of the inner life that's been cultivated in you. Crisis, Oswald Chambers says, crisis reveals character. What comes out of you in a crisis is what was in you before you got there. And so the wilderness experience sometimes is a, a, an intensified, it's a crisis experience that reveals the power of the inner life that is already within you, that you've been cultivating in Nazareth. This is Jesus. Jesus is tempted, he's tried by the devil, and out of him comes the kingdom of God. He, he, the crisis revealed his character, that he was founded, he was dependent, he was of God, like God. Right? Or a crisis experience, this, this would also be like David's wilderness experience. Uh, if you look at the life of David uh, extensively, he, is, he, he gets uh, cast out by Saul, and he finds this group of people, they gather to him in a cave, and he then moves to Philistines, and, they, they're, and then those group of people, they're outcasts of society, they become known as David's mighty Men. So he forms an army out of this group of outcasts. He's uh, kind of going around. He's in, it's just crazy years uh, in the desert. And then uh, the point, the day of his promotion, this is what happens. Those, those mighty men that he rose up, those people that were outcasts, that he gave them identity and a group and a culture and was powerful, made them warriors. Uh, after their city gets burned when they were, they were gone, the men, it says, they start contemplating whether or not they should kill David. David gets rejected by his people. It's a wilderness. He, he'd been in the desert. He was anointed king for, for 13 years, but then he gets rejected by the own outcast that he rose up and gave an identity and a purpose. And it says that David removed himself and strengthened himself in the Lord. And that was the day Saul was killed and a messenger came and said, you are the king of Israel. So a crisis revealed David's character. The other thing that the wilderness can do is it can be a crisis experience that actually beckons you into the interior life. We see this, the Joseph's life. Uh, we see this in the life of Paul. Paul is beckoned by God. He has a crisis experience that actually gives him an awakening that where he had been living is not the way of the kingdom. And it's a call into the interior life. So it just depends on where the wilderness comes in your process. It does different things. That's, there's very more, much more nuanced than that, but I just wanna get that in your mind, right? It's a wilderness. It's an intensified crisis. That's the wilderness. So the desert, revival comes from the desert, and the desert consists of two things. One, Nazareth and the desert. You guys are gotta learn. One, two, Okay, it's been a long time since you're in elementary school, I can tell. Okay, so Jesus goes to the, the, he lives in Nazareth, he walks through the wilderness, and then he emerges in the power of the Spirit, as we read, right? The authority for revival is not found in institutional power. There is no power from man to bring revivalistic expression, it is a power that comes from God. Jesus emerges after being with God. The interior life is so fortified within him that the anointing is oozing from him. He's in the power of the Spirit. He starts turning the world upside down. But it wasn't revival yet. Because if, if you really zoom out of the narratives of the Gospels, you'll see that he had a very small adoption from the poor and the outcasted of Israel, but the religious establishment never accepted him. He, he never ushered in regional, global transformation during his time on earth. He was actually rejected. And his ministry, at one point, he's a fall, he's, the crowds are getting bigger, and then they start getting smaller and smaller and smaller, and then he ends his life with the very people that were shouting Hosanna, were the ones that begin shouting crucify, the very 12 that were his loyal ones, the Peter who said, I will die for you, denies him. And he's left with a few women and John at the cross. He's rejected. We read this verse in Hebrews. He was the scapegoat. 
And it says, as Jesus suffered outside the gate, say outside the gate. See, the scapegoat was the, the, they would bring that to the priest. The priest would lay its hands to signify the bestowing of the sin on the, of the community upon the scapegoat. And then they would send the goat out into the desert to bear the reproach of Israel. And so Jesus emerges from the desert with revivalistic authority, but he's never brought into the camp. They push him back out. And he has to go back out. He's crucified in the desert. Literally, Golgotha was outside the city gate. It was symbolic to say, you don't belong here. You are an outsider. You are shamed. You are reproached. Kind of morbid. What we have to recognize here is that this is the path of revival. People don't like it. There's often adoption, early adoption, but widespread rejection. But then what we see through the history of revival, obviously Jesus resurrects from the dead. That was Easter. That was amazing. I'm still living in the glow of that, are you? He is alive today as well. It's always a Resurrection Sunday. Just want to make that theological point. I am a pastor. Just want you to know that. Uh, Easter is still alive. It's a reality. Anyways, Jesus raises from the dead, and then a global transformation takes place. But it takes place from where? Outside the gate. In the desert. Jesus doesn't come in. He, he forms a community of the desert. Right, the church, at its truest essence, we are a community of the desert. We're a community that is different from all the other power structures on earth. And, and I'm going to, you might need to listen to this message a couple times, but I'm going to try to bring that really simplified so that you can grasp it. Right, Jesus brought revival, but he brought revival outside the gate. And revival will always remain outside the gate. And this is a commentary. This is a commentary on the power structure of the church and how we, as American Christians, I think we have some changing of how we think about revival that will actually posture our hearts to become a part of it if we desire it. Right? So we have a complicated identity as the church because we are a community. Right? And, and communities need government. Do you agree with that? Thankfully, most of you do. We, we don't hate government entirely yet in this nation, which is good because we sing about Jesus a king. That's a governmental role, right? So communities have leadership. So we are a community. We have governance. We have leadership in the church, but we are not a community like the communities of the world, the broken communities of human systems. We're a community of the desert. And what I'm trying to say tonight is that if we remove the desert from our community, we become a hot mess. And we become just as broken as all the other communities in the world. And this happens in the church. I believe it's happened in this nation. And I, I want to just describe why. Right? If, we, if we take the desert out of our understanding of the church life, if we don't learn to embrace and celebrate Nazareth and the wilderness the same way that we celebrate the stage and the ministry and the anointing and the work of the Spirit, we're a hot mess. Because at the center of our discipleship ethos as the church, we have to recognize that the desert beckons for us. Because revival comes from the desert. Authority and anointing doesn't come from another human being. It comes from the face of God alone. If we remove the desert from the discipleship matrix of the church, right, which is like the things that we would say disciple and raise us up into maturity, if we remove the desert from that, we will be tempted to bypass Jesus' first 30 years through the means of self-promotion. We'll just kind of skip right through Nazareth, skip through the wilderness, and we want to see awakening. I want to be used by God. I want to ministry. I want to see miracles. I want to see, I want to give words. I want to, I want to be used. I want to be used like I see the other places being used. I want to skip through that. I want to get right to the good stuff. 
But the problem with that is that we are living on the out, from the outside in. And that's what self-promotion is. It's living from the outside in. Self-promotion isn't about if you're on Instagram or not. It's not about if you advertise or not. It's about what is resourcing your life. Where are you living from? And there's, there's a mysterious element to this, which makes it hard. But, but we have to, to recognize this. I'm going to try to, to bring this in because the root at the issue, the root of it is do we believe in the authority of God or are we seeking the authority of man? Man has authority. Man's systems have power structures. There's corporate ladders to climb. But if we start seeing that in the life of the church, we're missing it. Jesus' disciples had the same broken system. Can we sit at your right hand and your left? I'm one of the three, and the other 12 are bickering about the three, and we're like, how can Jesus do that? It's because we don't see the, and understand God's ways. We don't understand his governance. Hopefully we can more in the next 15 minutes. Let's see. And, and, and the heart of this, there's an idolatry. We are living in this country right now, and I believe the church is infected with this, but there's an idolatry of influence. Everybody wants to be an influencer. There's nothing wrong with desiring influence. But are we living it from the outside in or is it the in, inside out? Is influence the fruit or is influence, influence the pursuit? Is it the aim? Right? Our, our aim has to be Jesus. Jesus has to be the pursuit. And it's such a fine line. If you haven't walked through Nazareth in the wilderness, you'll never be able to distinguish it. You'll never be able to see it. Because it's not about the outside, it's about the inside. And the inside is only discovered in Nazareth in the wilderness. It's discovered in the desert. God is the desert. And when the desert becomes interiorized inside of you, you recognize that there is a vast expanse inside you. That God, it's God that, that you have to know, that you were created to know. When Augustine said it's a God-shaped hole, he, I don't think he articulated the vastness of that hole, the vastness of that expanse. There is a desert inside of you. And the reason he puts you in the desert is so that you'll start to recognize that what you see on the outside and feel on the outside, it's, it is a vast and mysterious expanse that is God that you have to know, that you will be restless until you find your rest in him, until you know him, until that vast expanse has become a cultivated garden where you know the Lord. You'll never be able to distinguish You'll never be able to distinguish if it's self-promotion or if it's the true expression. You'll, you'll never know these things until you know him. And you won't know him unless you go to the desert because the desert is where you see face to face with him. The desert is where you learn his voice. The desert is when all the other things strip away and you find out what you really worship and who you really worship and where the allegiance of your heart really lies. It's in the desert because revival doesn't come from the institutional places of power. It doesn't come from the pulpit. It comes from the desert. It comes from God. It comes from a people that have found him, from a people that know him. All right, get it out. I'm gonna speak this, this might sound intense, but I think it should sober us, and I have no judgment in my heart when I say this. But I would say as a, a macroeconomic statement of the church in this nation, the, the shepherds, we pastors have sold our birthrights for a bowl of soup. And we've bypassed the vocation of being a voice crying from the desert to hurry and to garner influence and numbers and size and, and, and all the things that we think are the sign of revival. And in so doing, as shepherds, we've created cultures that empower and justify the same behavior within the congregations. And so we look at the church and, and we come into the church and because we are very ineptly uh, attuned to the power structures that we live in, we start to see the same power structure in the church that we see in all the other broken institutions of our world. And we don't have language or understanding that the church is a community of the desert. And so we start seeing, okay, there's the powerful people. And if I want to see my dream in God fulfilled, I need to get close to them.
and we create a culture that justifies all types of comparison, competition, and we think it's normal. And it's okay because it was with Jesus. Jesus took a few years to disciple the ones who followed him out of this same broken system. We say, how could Jesus have three? And the other nine were not the three. And then the other 70 were not the 12. And then the other crowd was not the 70. Seems so unfair. Maybe Jesus wasn't so worried about their proximity to him as a human. Because he knew that all that matters is if people went to the desert and learned to be with God. That's all they needed. I'm, I'm serious. Anointing, authority, the power of God doesn't come from being in close proximity to any human being. It comes from being in proximity with God. And the desert is just available as available to you as to anybody else in this room. The desert is the great equalizer. And a culture of revival, that, that's what's so dynamic about it. That's what allows a community to be a people movement is because we all have the same access to the power source. And that doesn't mean that it's anarchy. It's not anarchy. There is leadership in the community of the desert. But at all places in the community, there's access to the power of God, meaning that all can be significant, all can be used, all have something to offer and contribute, all can find fulfillment. The scarcity of the world's power structures don't apply to the church because we have the desert. In any institution, there's only going to be so many people that are really like the, the leaders and the shapers and the movers and the that's true. There's a scarcity, there's a scarcity of callings from an earthly perspective, but it's not that way in the church because we have the desert. And mysteriously, but very practically, we all have to walk through Nazareth, me included. We all have to walk through the wilderness. And how we steward that will be the determining influence on what God can and cannot do through our lives. Nobody can hinder you and nobody can do it for you. It doesn't matter who you know or how much money you have. It doesn't matter your education or your relational network. It doesn't matter how many followers you have. It doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is how you steward those places. Is this computing in your minds? There's a mysterious power that's found in the desert. Self-promotion is a life of exterior pursuit. And I would equate it to like trying to run a marathon without any of those water stations. Anybody ever run a marathon? Those water stations are like the manna in the wilderness. You literally spend like the five minutes leading up to the station thinking about how am I going to make sure that I grab that cup without squeezing too hard so I lose the water? And then how am I going to in stride drink it so that I can find life for my body? Anybody ran, you know what I'm talking about. You're like, why am I having a crisis every time I see this water station in my mind? It's like, gosh, it's like water. You know, like there's just something about that experience, you know. It, a life of self-promotion is like trying to run a marathon, but there's no one giving you water. Like, you're not going to make it is the point. If you're always having to be, it's, if it's on the outside, it's just it's, you're not going to make it. It doesn't make sense. Right? You can run. You could run a few miles, but you're not going to make it. You're not going to finish the race, right? But the, the desert is about learning to be resourced from a well of God that's within you, where you can drink at any time. You know, the, the self-promotion's like chasing, it's chasing the green grass, and it will leave you thirsty. Grass is always greener somewhere, and you chase it, but it will leave you thirsty. But the, the desert is learning 
you, you go to a dry place and you, your thirst is satisfied. There's, just, there's a mysterious power that takes place, but above all else, uh, the power of the desert is the power of detachment. This is a, a book called Pustinia. Say that three times fast. Pustinia, Pustinia, Pustinia. All right, this is a woman uh, named Catherine Doherty. She was a, a Russian uh, immigrant to America because of the uh, persecution, like maybe 70, 80 years ago. And, uh, Pustinia is just Russian for desert. Uh, but this is, this is her speaking about the desert. She says, why does anyone want to go to a desert to follow Christ? The desert is the land of detachment. To follow Christ is to deny ourselves. The first kind of detachment in the desert is from oneself. I think that the greatest challenge of the desert is this detachment from oneself. This is not simply detachment from my will, as some Western spiritual writers put it. It's detachment from many things, from food, from studies, etc. But even more than these material things, it's the ability to go out in a boat that has no rudder and no oars. It's the ability to drift wherever God wants to lead you. One of the characteristics of the desert is this ability to let yourself go wherever God wants to lead you. I may come to a nice little river where I would like to stop and have lunch. Whoosh, a, stork, a storm comes up. So I don't stop to eat, but head into the storm. It's this going with God wherever he wants to take you that is the essence of detachment. And detachment is not not caring. Detachment comes when we've allowed God to so change us that our expectations about life are the same ones he has. That's detachment. Where my emotional calibration, what I feel going into any experience is the exact same thing. Like it's, I, I'm, in, I'm in line with him. I'm so moldable to him. And so much of the pain that I think we experience in our walk with God is kicking against the goads. That's what God told Paul on the road to Damascus. Stop kicking against the goads, which was a near eastern term of it was like a you know those spiky thorn bush type things kicking him barefooted resisting and it was causing pain the actual resistance is what was creating the pain that's what god told paul you're creating pain for yourself you're resisting me and that's producing pain the wilderness it it isolates so beautifully and exposes and, and, and deals with that which resists God in you. And we, we, we often know the things in us that resist God. Like there's just some things that we, we're aware of, but the things that really scare me in my life are the things that I'm not aware of. And only the desert can reveal those things. It's only when you get face to face with God that, that that's when he starts to show. These are the areas, these are the things that are not in accord with me. We, I don't want to sound morbid in saying this, but I think sometimes we take a little lightly the depth of the depravity that sin created in us. It made us not like we're supposed to be. It changed our desires, it changed our emotions, it changed the orientation of how we exist. And in, in underestimating the depth of depravity, we also then underestimate how powerful the redemption that God wants to bring to us is. We underestimate it to the point that we would want to jump past the desert and say, use me, God, I'm ready. When God's like, no, not yet. There is so much more. The great tragedy to me of self-promotion isn't that you can't do some good things. I think a lot of people have done some good things in the name of God. Out of fleshly, that, that immaturity, I guess, would probably be a better saying it. But I think the great tragedy of self-promotion is the depth that we forfeit in that. 
We, we bring a wisp to the world when God wanted to let thunder flow through your mouth and through your life. We settle for such meager means. We settle for crumbs that fall off the edge of the table when it's a feast that he's prepared for us. That is the tragedy of forsaking the desert. It is not about eternal salvation. It's about the true influence that you created to offer to the world. You are a dream of God clothed in skin. He longs to see that dream fulfilled. So it's the desert. I don't even know where I am. I'm just kind of like checking in on my notes every once in a while. It's like, oh, I didn't say half of that. So just keep going forward, I guess. This, this is my dream. My dream here in Riverhouse, this is part of it, is, is that maybe, maybe that my great desire, is probably a better way of saying it, is that we would be a community that embraces and celebrates the desert the same way that we embrace and celebrate everything else in church the way we celebrate what takes place on a stage on Sunday, the way that we celebrate the, the release of the spirit and the prophetic grace and the anointing and, and community and all, all the other things that we know are aspects of our discipleship process, but that we would celebrate the desert. We have been afraid of the desert. I think for a long time in this nation, we've been afraid. That's like a bad word. That's where you go when you're in trouble. It's where you go when something's wrong. It's where you go and like, where's the hidden sin in my life, God? At the desert is God. And when we get the privilege of, of, of being in that place, it's, it's a joy. It's, it's the greatest gift. It is the place of such beautiful, mysterious, powerful transformation. It's a place that we're desperate for. The stage is good when God releases and does things through us through the community that's beautiful. It can look like a lot of different things for a lot of different people. It's not a cookie cutter, but we have to start to see and celebrate Nazareth and see and celebrate the wilderness when it comes and be a community of the desert. To be a community that says, I don't want to live from the outside in. I want to live from the inside out. To be a community that has a different way of viewing God's power and authority lived out in, in, in the corporate life. Your proximity to me, personally or relationally, is not what's going to dictate God being able to use you here. I mean that. The only thing that's going to dictate God's using you in your life is your proximity to him. Proximity to anybody else, any revival group leader, anybody that's on the stage, anybody that the anointing's upon, it's just as accessible to you. It will look different. It's your grace. It's your gift. And I can truly look at you and say that, 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 that those that, that God will exalt in this community, those that God will exalt and send out from this community, those that God's going to use, and it will determine it's going to be about Nazareth and the wilderness. Not going to be how cool you are. I don't, not about how you dress. Not about how you speak. Not about anything else. It's, it's, do you know God? That's kind of exciting. I know you're thinking, but that's exciting. That's my deep desire. I think the desert has the power to make us truly a different type of community, a different type of people a people that are void of competition and comparison, truly. A people whose expectations are aligned with the expectations of God. A people who put their hope in the same things that where God's instructing us to put our hope. A people who move in the flow and the rhythm of God's grace, not stepping on our own toes, on each other's toes or on his toes. Because if we do this, we will emerge from that desert and the authority of the Spirit with revivalistic grace. And when we pray and contend and say, I want revival, if you've gone through Nazareth in the wilderness, you can rest assured that when it comes, you'll be ready. 
you won't be one who's resisting it because you won't see things as they are on the outside. You'll have the amazing ability to see things from the inside out. That's Jesus. How could Jesus see people? How could Jesus always rightly discern what was going on because Jesus saw to the heart of things because he lived from the heart of things? I feel like I'm trying to put poetic language and imagery around something that words can't quite express. There's a sacredness and a mystery. I think that part of us embracing mystery back into Western Christianity is embracing the desert and recognizing that in the ethos of our church in Riverhouse, you know, we have Journey to Wholeness and Sundays and revival groups and prayer sets and prophetic ministry and all these different expressions and the life of our church. But I would say in the center, but also permeated through all of them, is the desert, is God. And more than anything else that's going, it's God that we're searching, searching for and allowing ourselves to be molded by. So this is what I want to close tonight this way. Uh, I just feel like some of you, you're, you, you say I'm, you're, maybe you're sitting here, you, don't, you just know you're in a desert, you're in, you're in a place that perhaps you haven't, you just feel like there's thirst in your heart. I guess that's, that's my call. And I'm just going to ask someone to come up here and play. And we're just going to do a little ministry time. But I just feel like God wants to bring refreshing. He wants to satiate thirst tonight from himself. And if that's you, you just, there's a thirst in my heart. Like David prayed in the Psalms, my soul thirsts for you, Lord. If that's you, I just want you to stand, and I'm just going to just pray that the God of the desert will bring water to the thirst in your soul. God, for those of my brothers and sisters that find themselves in Nazareth, for those, God, who find themselves in the wilderness, the thing both those times have in common, God, is thirst. And I just pray, God, that you would amplify thirst in this room. Lord, that, that rather than, than being afraid of that feeling, Lord, that they would just embrace it, God. And then I just, I just even nurture it, God, and allow that thirst to just, to just express. And maybe even just whisper your thirst to God. Just... Just put language, just, um, you know, my soul thirst for you in a dry and weary land where there's no water. My, my heart yearns for you, God. Lord, and that in this place of thirst that you would satisfy. You say to us, Jesus, come to me all who thirst and I'll give you a drink. And you tell us that those who drink, God, out of our innermost being will come a river. And I just pray, Lord, that tonight it would be a drink. And that for those who are thirsty, God, and for those who have been putting their thirst in the wrong places, God, for those that have been thirsting for outside things, that there'd be a true poverty of spirit tonight. Lord, there would be a, a breaking off of all other desires that are in competition with you. And that there'd be a poverty of desire in the sense that the only thing that we desire and thirst for is you. Lord, and that you would just do an inner work right now, God. That the Spirit of God, you'd come and that you'd speak words tonight. God, you'd speak uh, fresh words from heaven, Lord, and that you would just give water to thirsty souls. God, satisfy like only you can satisfy, I ask. And just beckon us, God. Beckon us into a place of deep gratitude and celebration for the gift of where we are right now. Let us no longer kick against the goads if we're in Nazareth and keep trying to leave the city. God, but let us sit still and embrace the, the mundane and the ordinary and allow it to, to push us into the inner life, to push us into the place of exploring the endless depths of who you are. God, and for those that are in the wilderness and in a place of pain, 
God, let that pain no longer be a, a, a curse. God, but renew vision tonight that that is perhaps the very catalyst that is doing a deep and profound work. God, it is releasing the spirit, that it's the, the tip of, a, of the surgeon's scalpel. God, that's removing that which has been in resistance with you. God, that you do amazing things. God, bring the power of detachment to those that need to detach tonight, God, to detach from the much and the many, God, the busyness and the hurry. I feel like there's a word for someone in here that, that if, if you hurry, I tarry. But if you'll tarry, you'll find me here and you'll find me now. God, let us detach from hurry. Let us detach from trying to grasp with our own hands. God, let us detach from trying to climb any corporate ladder or climb any power construct in the church or out of the church. God, and let us be a people of the desert. God, restore our identity as a community of the desert that will join you, Jesus, in the desert. And we'll be a people who know God. Yeah, we have a ministry team available, and I just feel like some of you, there's, there's words. They have words from heaven for you, and they're just going to encourage your heart. And that God just, he just really, like, Jesus wants you to receive from him tonight. So you can just come forward, and you can receive ministry right now if you want. They're just going to listen to the Spirit for you and just offer you the words of heaven. And I just had a picture even as I was praying earlier in the day that it was like they have these cold glass of water that's a gift to you in your place of thirst. So I'm just going to invite you that if God's doing a, something, he's just stirring in you tonight and you're thirsting, to just come and, and let ministry team uh, minister to you and, and give you a glass of water. And uh, yeah, so if that's you, you can just come forward. But I just bless you all in the name of Jesus. We're just going to keep this a ministry space like we often do. Uh, if you want to get your children, yeah, you can get them and That'd be awesome, and you can bring them back in, and they can get ministry as well. But we're just going to let the Spirit uh, just just move in this place and, uh, and, and let Him just do work. And I just sense that some of you, there's a detachment that's taking place. There's a, there's a, there's a leaving of things behind. And I just, I just want to kind of exhort you, like, don't, don't leave this place with something that you're not supposed to be carrying. Like, there's grace, and then... Also, don't leave this place thirsty if you're supposed to receive a drink. So just, just want to just respond to the Spirit yourself. And I feel like there's things that God wants to do individually in each one of you. So just, I bless you to respond to the Father. And I'm just going to have the, the team just kind of play some music up here and let this be a place to, to commune with God. So we thank you that the God of the desert is here. And I bless you to go and live in the midst of the city, in the midst of the busyness, in the midst of the craziness, knowing that the God of the desert is inside of you and beckoning you to himself. So I bless you in the name of Jesus.